Yes, welcome back to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. Glad you are here for session two of Augustine. The great early church father, Augustine, it is part of the Sunday school class we are teaching at Campbell Baptist Church. I read for you out of Matthew 5, verse 34 and 35. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Hmm, there it is. You know, one day I might tell you what the title of this podcast is all about. Get into it. But we're not going to do that today. You are here for Augustine Part 2. This is the part of his life going through the rest of his teenage years and into his 20s. He is on a quest for truth, and that is the title of this one. The devotional question is, is Christianity a religion for mature, intelligent people? Is it a religion for adults, in other words? I'm glad you are listening to this. I think you will benefit from it, Lord willing. Enjoy the listen. morning. Welcome. This is session two of our Augustine series. Augustine was an early church father. Many people consider him the last early church father, although, and I've commented on this, uh, I think in an evening service, that what if history goes on so long that us right now is still considered the early church, right? Yeah, like, what if one day in the future they're wondering, they're, they're getting confused. Wait, who was first, Augustine or R.C. Sproul? <laughs> I mean, if it goes 10,000 years, however long the Lord lets, us, lets this go for. So we consider him kind of the last of the early church fathers. We don't know if history will treat him that way, but we certainly do. This is a multi-week series on this man, his life, what the Lord did through him, and what we can learn about it. That's the devotional aspect. I spent some time talking about that. Each week, there will be a devotional question from his life that we will be answering and considering. So last week, just as a quick recap, we looked at the first 15 years of his life, He's born to a non-Christian father and a Christian mother who is not allowed to give the faith to make his, their boy a Christian. So the question we were examining was, how do you raise children in the Lord in difficult circumstances? And so that's what we looked at out of his life. His father ended up dying while he was studying. Uh, he comes back when he's 15 years old. His father dies, but before his father died, he has one of those late end-of-life, deathbed-type conversions, gets baptized, uh, converts to Christ. Augustine himself does not convert at that time, but later on he would reflect that that significantly impacted him. So he stays in Tagast, where he was born. He stays there for uh, about a year, a little less than a year, caring for his mom and, uh, and all that type of stuff. But that doesn't last long. He needs to keep moving along. So he goes to Carthage in seven or in 371. I gave you a handy little red map there on your table. You can see the area that we're talking about. So where it says Hippo Regius, 
we're not at, I mean, you probably know Augustine of Hippo. You've probably heard that before. So you know where this is going one day whenever we get there. But you see where Hippo is. It's up along the coast. There is a modern-day city right beside Hippo. It's not called Hippo anymore, but you can still see it. Some of the ruins are still there. So we're not there yet, though. Where he grew up, you see where it says Milevis? He was raised maybe halfway between the coast and where the red line ends, which is where the desert is. Kind of put your finger in the middle there. That's about where he grew up. And now he's 16 years old. His father has passed away. He was sponsored to go and study in Carthage. This is in modern-day Tunisia. The city where you see Carthage is Tunis, which is the capital of Tunisia today. So that is still a city. It was obviously raided, destroyed, all that type of stuff. Uh, but it still exists. So he goes to Carthage. Carthage was the capital of the Western African province. It's a very important city. There might, there's probably only one African city that can compete with it in terms of what it can offer and its significance, and that would be Alexandria over in Egypt which would be in the eastern African province. But in the west, this is the important city. This is where you go to get a good education, where you go to become important, to pave your way for a good salary and a nice, comfortable life. That's what we're all after, isn't it? So he goes there. That's a joke. We're not. <laughs> so he goes there, and he gets a top-notch education. He... He, comes, he becomes well-versed in the classics of Latin literature. Now, if I ask you, what are the classics today? What do we... If you're telling somebody, look, you've got to read the classics, what are you giving them? I know what I would give them. That, that's Brave New World, 1984, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I'm sure you can throw a few more in there. But the classics, we, we all have some classics. Well, he went through the Latin classics when he was in Carthage, and... Going through that, he also was studying the mastery of public speaking, or rhetoric. Rhetoric is putting together arguments in a persuasive fashion. You're presenting something. It's all about the public presenting of a position. He, ma he became a master at public speaking. He also studied Greek. Now, this is, what's interesting about this is there is no Greek footprint in Carthage at all. Yet he's trying to study Greek, but he was a very, very poor linguist. He struggled in languages. Look, I took Greek course, and I struggled at Greek. I know what it's like, you poor boy Augustine, when you are in an English context and you're trying to learn Greek, and it's very difficult. Well, he struggled. He's great at, uh, at rhetoric. He, he gets this love for philosophy. So he's, he's a smart guy. He, he really does have a good brain, but he struggles with languages. He, he's good at Latin, sucks at Greek. That'll be relevant, actually, later on in his life. His critics would use that as a big sticking point for discrediting him. Uh, one day, as we'll look at, he becomes a pastor, and he preaches, and he writes lots of books. They will criticize him that he doesn't know Greek. So the manuscripts that he's using... There are Latin manuscripts. The New Testament was not written in Latin. The Old Testament was not written in Latin. It had to be translated. And the translations that he would use, a lot of the times, 
was not very good. So you can see it when he's preaching on a certain text. He's quoting a verse, and we can go look at it, and it's not necessarily the same. Usually the essence is the same, but the word, the wording is off. The translation's not perfect. His critics will use that against him later on. The thing to know now, though, is that he did know that he, this was a struggle of his, and he did know that the manuscripts he used were not always perfect. Uh, one of the most impressive parts about Augustine is how much he got right, despite having very poor scriptures to use. Poor in terms of translation, not in terms of quality, of course. But we'll get to that one day. He's in school. He spent, this is where he starts falling into uh, youthful pleasures, we'll call it. He develops this love for theater and, and arts, artistic expression. He spends a lot of time in the theater. Spends a, he, he gets this love for music, for drama, for romance, including sex. Uh, another th area where he gets criticized is people will say that he was a sex fiend during this time in his life. Remember, he's 16, 17, 18 years old. And this time, he loves theater, he loves romance, he loves women, and it's a bit overblown how they present it. But either way, in this time, he acquires a mistress. And he gets this mistress when he is 17 years old, and what do you know, she becomes pregnant. And his son is born before he's 18 years old. So I said last week, teen pregnancy is not a new thing. Well, unmarried, unwed teen pregnancy, that, that's what goes on with Augustine. Here's an interesting thing about his mistress. We know a lot of things about his life, Augustine, that is. We don't know her name. Her name is never mentioned in his confessions, in any of his writings. We do not know her name. And it's not, you, know, you might think, well, did she just give him a son and then peace out? No, not, not at all. Actually, he would live faithfully with this woman for about a dozen years. He was in a situation that we would call common law marriage. They're living together, they're raising this boy together, but they're not married. And later in life, he will convert to Christianity. Uh, according to tradition, so does she. But they will break off their illicit union. He will send her away, and he will keep the boy himself. But they, they never end up getting married, even though they stay faithfully together for about 12 years. That's going to be a devotional thing we look at, because we would probably pastorally handle that differently today than what they did back then. If you came together in an illicit union, especially if there are class distinctions, which there would be with Augustine and this mistress, you, you don't stay together. You, you have to split, and we'll get into the reasons why, but we wouldn't handle it the same way today. You'll see that with a few things in his life. So he gets this love for philosophy, and he gets it from reading Cicero. You heard of Cicero before? Uh, philosopher type, smart guy. He wrote this essay called Hortensius. We no longer have this essay, but apparently it was really important because Augustine mentions it a few times. Other philosophers mention it. This was an influential essay. We don't have it. But he reads this while he's in school, and this propelled him into a love and search for truth. Now, this is a guy who didn't know his position yet when he read this, but it got him interested in the category of truth. He is beginning the quest for truth. 
He was all about theater, music, drama, romance. He starts getting on this path towards, okay, what, what is real? What is true? And he begins his quest. He began reading all kinds of philosophies, including reading the scriptures. This is when he read the Gospels and several of the other letters. Not the whole thing, but he read a bit of Christianity. So here you got this boy. He's 18 years old. He's or in his later teen years. This was a process. He's got a son. He's got a mistress. He's reading all this stuff. And he's on this quest for truth. And now we have to consider, who is Christianity for? I mean, is, this, is Christianity a religion for mature, intelligent, seeking people? Or is it a religion for grown-ups, if you will? Let me uh, provide some statistics for you. There's Professor Larry Poston. He uh, provides some interesting stats regarding the age of conversions to a religion. The average age of a convert to Islam, this is it, it is 31 years old. 31 is the average age for a Muslim convert. You know what the average age is for a Christian convert? I said this wrong the other day uh, at our Tuesday thing. The average age for a Christian convert is 16. 16 years old, 31 for Islam. For every year that a non-Christian grows older than 25 years old, the odds against them ever converting goes up exponentially. Okay, so if you are not a Christian by 25, the odds are so against that person ever becoming a Christian. Remember, the average age for a convert is 16. For Islam, it's 31. What does that tell you? Now, there's... There's pluses and there's minuses to, to each there. But one thing that we have to recognize about that data is that Islam is seen as more of a religion for older people, for mature people, those who are looking for something now to, to bring, to affect your world. See, when you're young, you, you don't have much of a big picture of things. You... You generally just have your mind on your studies or you have your mind on uh, trying to raise your family. Whatever it is, you, you have a much narrower focus. And as you get older, you start realizing that, oh, this is a big world. There's a lot of different beliefs out there, a lot of different philosophies. i got to find my place in this world. And you're smaller than you think as you get older. You start recognizing that. At least for many of us, we do. So... When it comes to this Christianity thing, especially when you contrast it with Islam, I'm going to give a reason why Westerners choose Islam over Christianity. According to Larry Pawson, he gives five reasons, and I'm only going to mention one that is relevant for this. He says this, Fourth, Islam is practical. It is considered a this-worldly religion in contrast to Christianity, which is perceived as abstract to the extreme. Muhammad left his followers a political, social, moral, and economic program founded on religious precepts. Jesus, however, is said to have advocated no such program. It is claimed that the New Testament is so preoccupied with his imminent return that it is impractical for modern life. What do you think about that? According to him, as you get older, 
Islam starts making more sense of a mission that you're actually accomplishing here in this world. It's about more than just have faith in something. It's now do this. We're trying to spread this. Uh, it's a very political kingdom in that religion, but it's more practical for the here and now, so they say. And this is where I get annoyed with this, just focus on Jesus, just focus on Jesus. Okay, our, our politicians are doing this. No, 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 don't worry about it. Just focus on Jesus. Is that helpful? Isn't the things that Jesus brings, his kingdom coming, supposed to affect every area and every sphere of life? You know, Christ taught us to pray. And one of the parts of his prayer was to say, your kingdom come. See, we can, we can fall into this, uh, maybe you've heard this line before, so um, heavenly focused that you're no earthly good. Well, I, I may have butchered that. But you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good is one of the things. When, when all it is is, oh, just focus on Jesus. I don't, I don't listen to anything else. All I listen to is this one narrow understanding of what Jesus is. And to hell with the rest of the world. It's not helpful. It's not practical. And it's not true. Christ taught us to pray, your kingdom come. That means that what we do in the here and now, how we live in our society, how we interact and raise our families how we interact with politics, how we interact with social issues. It matters. We try to bring these things uh, under the truth of Christianity, under the truth of Christ, and we don't do it in the way that Islam does it. There's no forcing. There's no uh, making you do it or anything like that. We try to persuade people to come into Christ's kingdom, and that has relevant application to every sphere of life. So, what this professor says that we need is, a, is an adult gospel. An adult gospel. Now, Augustine, he did read some of the scriptures, as mentioned, and he was impressed with them. He said that the scriptures, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that they were different than anything else he had ever read. He could tell that there was something different about the scriptures, but this is what he wrote in Confessions, his book. When I turned toward the scriptures, they appeared to me to be quite unworthy to be compared with the dignity of Cicero. Truly, they were of a sort to aid the growth of little ones, but I scorned to be a little one. And swollen with pride, I looked upon myself as fully grown. There it is. Have we settled into a Christianity that isn't suitable for the fully grown? It's a relevant question. So he's studying, he gets this love for philosophy, he has a son, and he falls in with a certain, he's on a quest for truth, and he finds a truth that he's going to submit himself to. He falls in with the Manichees, the Manichaeism. Man, Mani, M-A-N-I, Mani was a Persian prophet. You can see around the 270s is when Manichaeism started spreading. It, it became somewhat... Uh, respectable and how large it got, but it never took over the empire or anything like that. But it had a pretty big following for a time. Uh, he was a, Manny was a Persian prophet who we would kind of call him a new age guru. He combined elements of Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Gnosticism, and put it together into this, you can have 
higher levels of consciousness. They, they invoked horoscopes, and they were big into astrology and how signs in the sky are supposed to impact your day-to-day -day life and the things that happen. This, by the way, is one of the reasons Christians avoid horoscopes and astrology and things like that. It's not a practice that the Bible ever sanctions. So he falls in with this crowd. Now, Manny was 12 years old when he started when he said that he started getting revelations from a spirit. He would receive more revelations a few years later, and he would call the spirit who talks to him his twin. So his twin, the spirit, is telling him and revealing all this stuff to him. He, uh, in his second round of revelations as a later teen, he would call himself the promised paraclete that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. Manny was the paraclete, according to his twin and himself. Manichaeism is very black and white, as opposed to Greek philosophies. They were, they were not very black and white, but the Manichaeans were. There's light and there's darkness. There's good and there's bad. It's very definite in that way, and that appeals to a lot of people, and it suited Augustine very well in this time. Their beliefs centered around the absolute existence and the battle between good and evil. These are equal powers, kind of like there's God and there's Satan, and they're equal powers. He's good, this one's bad, and they're battling it out. They're in this war. Oh, who's going to win? I don't know. They're both really powerful. That's sort of the idea here. They're battling for people's souls. Um, and, and it was usually put framed in this light and dark battle. But the light is drifting towards the spiritual realm, and the dark is spreading on the earth. So that's how they saw you. When you drift away, and when you die, and you escape this flesh, that's how you get to move towards the light. The more enlightened you become in your consciousness, the more good your deeds can become. When you die, you, you morph into the light. And there's also reincarnation beliefs. I said it's a mixture of things. Uh, and they didn't all believe the same things, but it combined a lot of different stuff. But darkness is moving on this realm, and it's continuing to spread on Earth. The way it was organized, the top people are called the perfecti. The perfecti are these enlightened ones. These are the ones who gained the required knowledge and consciousness to be the teachers of Manichaeism. They had very strict doctrine and very strict uh, aesthetics that they had to follow. The, their ethics that they had to follow was quite strict, at least it was supposed to be. So you have the perfecti, the enlightened ones, and then the, everybody else was called an auditor. You think you audit a class, like you're, you, you're listening. The auditors would follow at a distance. These are your, con, your converts. They're not enlightened enough yet, but maybe with a few bucks and following around, buying their books, maybe you can become a perfecti, but you start out an auditor. You were supposed to follow the doctrines, but not expected to follow the strict ethics that they would follow. And see that there'd probably develop to be some issues there between the auditors and the perfecti. So the big appeal to Manichaeism isn't just that it's very black and white, but it also seems to answer the problem of evil. Why is there evil on earth? That's going to be a devotional question we look at down the road. But to Manichaeism, well, there's equal powers battling it out. Of course there's going to be evil, both with us and then natural evil, like tornadoes, hurricanes, like... These powers are battling it out. There's going to be evil. It makes some sense. So it apparently solves the problem of evil. However, they would skirt over things that would challenge or contradict their beliefs. 
And that was going to start being the undoing with Augustine and the Manichees. He spent, though, nine years as a Manichaean. He was with them for a long time. He picked it up in his late teens. He spent almost his, his entire 20s as a Manichee. He followed this religion pretty closely. He tried to grow in their teaching, but he was coming across contradictions in what they said and what was actually what he uh, could see in real life. Not only that, but it was a very unsatisfying life ethic for him. Um, remember, he's a, he's a rhetorician. He knows how to put an argument in a persuasive way. And sometimes, I, I think people do this with their children sometimes, you worry about the career that they go into, that this career is going like, to push them away from the truth. It's just going to uh, kind of lead them deeper into the world and... They won't find truth there, and we can get really concerned. And, and his mother, Monica, certainly had questions about Augustine and his career as well. But you wonder, he's, he's a rhetorician, so he's just going to buy a good argument. Whatever is persuasively presented doesn't necessarily have to be true, but he's going to be won by something that sounds flowery and, and compelling. Well, that might be true, and that might have helped him come to Manichaeism, but it also was part of its undoing. He started realizing, oh, this sounds really nice, but it's actually very unsatisfying and doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it rationally. It sounded like they had a cogent philosophy, but it didn't offer much meat. This is one of the sources of contradiction that he had, was about astrology and mathematics. The mathematicians are writing down their stuff. There's been a lot of discoveries and mathematical theories, he came across mathematicians who could show definitively the movement of the stars, the moon. It's all in predictable patterns. It's not random based on what month you're born in and this is a sign for you now to how you're supposed to live and what to expect in your day. None of that. None of this, oh, I see stars like this. That must mean that there's a battle coming. You know, when you're trying to see signs everywhere and, and interpret that for daily life. It turns out that the movement in, in space, math can account for it. The Lord actually made a logical universe that goes according to the patterns that he sets there. You're not supposed to look for the sky for your philosophy of life. Now he start, So that's one of the contradictions, and then there were some others. Regarding the unsatisfying life ethic, this is what he had to say. And what did it profit me that I could read and understand for myself all the books I can get in the so-called liberal arts when I was actually a worthless slave of wicked lusts? So there's the other disconnect. He's got a great mind. He can understand things. But in terms of life, he's a slave to his lust. He already had recognized it as an unbeliever. He, could, he couldn't stop just... Uh, giving in to the cravings of his flesh. He kept giving in, couldn't stop. So on those two fronts, he started having issues with Manichaeism. He would later on say that a lot of the Manichaeans, especially their leaders, yeah, they would talk about all this being of the light, being enlightened, uh, and yet their moral lives would cater to hedonism and pursuits of pleasure. His words for it is that this was hypocritical debauchery. So that's how his fallout with the Manichaeism was pretty significant for him. Now, he's having all these troubles. He's talking to different people, and they're like, wait for Faustus. 
Faustus is coming. Just wait for Faustus. He was one of their great teachers. He was one of the most enlightened of the Manichees. He was coming into town. So he's asking these questions. It's almost like if we have issues with somebody, it's like, oh, just wait for, insert your favorite pastor here, or whatever. Just wait, they'll answer all your questions. I don't have the answers, but they do. That's what they're doing. Wait for Faustus. He's our greatest teacher. Now, Faustus, he had tremendous rhetorical ability. Obviously, that would appeal to someone like Augustine. He knew how to talk. He knew how to interact with people. He was humble also about what he didn't know. He would admit when he didn't know things or he didn't have the answer yet. But that conversation that he had when Faustus eventually came, he brings up his struggles to their greatest teacher. Uh, He's a rhetorician, Augustine is. He can see through what Faustus is doing. He's making things sound nice and like it's not a problem. Because he had no answer for the mathematical thing, the the astrology, the moon, the stars. He had no answer for it. Uh, But but he would make it sound like it's kind of nice and just in his way. He could see through it. You're not offering me the truth. Yeah, you sound good, but you're not offering it to me. And he's on this quest. They couldn't answer his most pressing questions, and he would leave the Manichees after nine years with them. Actually, his fallout began slightly before, but he said that he he wasn't going to officially leave until he found something better. So he stayed in Manichaeism for an extra little bit of time uh, until he could find something better. So now we are getting into his late 20s. Not a whole lot in his life happened during his 20s besides, uh, as you see here, he goes to Carthage, he's teaching, he's got a job, he's a rhetorician, you know, he's making some money, he's raising his son, he's living with his uh, common-law wife or his mistress. He starts getting restless of Carthage. He's, He's dropped Manichaeism, he's getting sick of it, he's... He wants something else. He needs a fresh start. Uh, Another big impact thing happened to him. One of his best friends while he was in Carthage, uh, this was, he talks about this guy almost like how David talks about Jonathan, like that close, intimate friendship that uh, you can have with somebody else. Well, he had a very close relationship with with a guy friend, and he caught a pretty bad fever. And I mentioned this last week. When you catch a bad sickness back then, it's, the chances of you coming back is not guaranteed, and you're used to, oh, they caught fever and died. You're, you're used to that. It's not uncommon for that to happen. So his best friend, who he was studying with and he had all these moments with, they would pick on other religions and other beliefs, including Christianity. Uh, this guy catches fever. He gets sick. He's, late, he's on his deathbed, essentially, And this boy was also raised in a Christian home, but rejected Christianity until this fever comes. And just like Augustine's father, this boy converts and asks to be baptized while he's dying of fever. Now, it happens. He is baptized, and then he he goes unconscious, falls asleep, whatever. And Augustine's waiting for him to wake up, sitting with him at his room. And the boy wakes up. And Augustine kind of says, man, what are they trying to do to you? That's funny, isn't it? He says something like that, trying to pick on, trying to mock, oh, they're they're forcing you to be baptized. Like, come on, that's so silly, the superstition. The boy said, if you want to remain friends with me, you will never mock this again. And Augustine is confused. What, What happened to you? Like, we used to pick on Christianity, and now you're a convert, and you actually believe this stuff? 
Augustine wouldn't bring it up again. He kept, he kept it to himself, but that gets him thinking again. Remember, a couple times in his life now, he's stopped in his tracks and he's thinking. He's reconsidering. This is another one of those moments. His father converts on his deathbed. His best friend converts on his deathbed. What's going on with this? Manichaeism isn't solving the issues that he has. So he's restless in Carthage. And where does he want to go? He wants the lights and the glimmer of Rome. Rome itself, if you look on your map there, you can see where Rome is. The journey from Carthage to Rome is, I mean, you're crossing the Mediterranean. It's not an insignificant journey, especially back then. You're not hopping on an airplane. You're, you're taking a boat. He goes to Rome, very much against his mother's wishes. His mother, she's such a sweet lady. She goes to Carthage when she hears that he's thinking about moving to Rome. She pleads with him. She's crying, do not go, stay. And she's pleading with him not to go. She does not believe this is a good move for him. And he tricks her saying, okay, I got to go take care of this with my family. He's still with the, his mistress and his son. And so she goes to bed and then he secretly leaves and takes his mistress and his son. And he goes to Rome. So he deceives his mother. And he would write that if the Lord could ever forgive me of this, he can forgive anybody of anything. How I deceived that woman. He felt so bad about that. He goes to Rome and he wants to be a teacher there. But it takes a long time before he gets established. By a long time, I mean, he doesn't just go there and get success. He, he was mocked by some of his students because of his accent. Uh, some things don't change. And another thing, his students would often not pay their fees. So he's struggling to make a living. He's getting mocked. It's just not taking off. He is in Rome for less than two years. He's not there very long at all. But while he was there, he fell in with a group called the New Academy. So remember, he's already disillusioned with the Manichees. He's still on this quest for truth. He's not at Christianity yet, doesn't see it as a grown-up religion. And he falls in with uh, a group of skeptics, is what we would call them. They questioned everything. There's no such thing as real truth. There's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as evil. Uh, skeptics. Mass skepticism. That appealed to him because of everything that happened with the Manichees. But it only gave him an enemy. That's one of the things with skepticism. All it ever gives you is an enemy. No, this isn't true. This isn't. Is that true? That it's not true? Oh, that's another question. But it gives him an enemy. It doesn't give him something to be for. If you ever get tempted into skepticism or questioning everything like that, just recognize you're not actually being given a positive life ethic or philosophy or theology or epistemology. All you're being given is I don't like this. This, is, this can't be true. You're just given an enemy. That's it. Would a truth seeker like Augustine stick with that for very long? Nah. And he wouldn't. So he wasn't with the new academy for very long. But he's in this quest. He's now switched between two different uh, philosophies, ways of life, and epistemologies. What is he searching for? Like you see in this man a longing for something deeper. I, I'm experiencing one of the, the popular religions of the day. That didn't work out. Now I'm going to embrace skepticism and question everything. Well, that doesn't last long. That doesn't work out. Where is this quest going to lead him? Was there a religion that could have an intelligent, maturing young man like him that actually had answers for life? 
I want us to turn, as we get ready to close, to Acts 26. In Acts 26, we get the Apostle Paul, and he's giving a defense of his faith before King Agrippa. This is not a new thing for Paul. He regularly got put before the authorities. I'm going to read, starting at verse 19, we're going to hear what Paul says to the end of the chapter. It says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but the saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What are you seeing in this text? And Paul, as he's living out his Christianity before this ruler, rational, missional, kingdom-focused, active, spiritual and physical, prophetic, bold. Christianity is not child's play. Yes, bring the children. Embrace the gospel with humility as a child. Let the children come. Yes and amen. But this religion and our mission is far from childish. What does it look like to love my neighbor? It means more than just Jesus died for your sins. What does it mean to seek his good? To have God's kingdom come as we're taught to pray. To teach and baptize the nations as commanded in the Great Commission. You'll notice in the Great Commission, it doesn't say baptize people in the nations. It says teach and baptize the nations. That means something. We're all part of God's family and we're given a mission to bring his kingdom. Let your quest for truth inspire you to be kingdom focused. Is this religion one for mature, intelligent people as much as it is for those with a simpler faith? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It is a religion that could even take someone like Augustine, a hothead who fell into hedonism, was in 
two major false beliefs. There's a religion for a man like him, too. He wouldn't last long in Rome. He would go to Milan. You can see it on your map. Another important city. He's 30 years old, and he comes across Ambrose. Perhaps you've heard the name Ambrose before, who's a local bishop, a former mayor, an ordained deacon, a presbyter. Wow, is there anything else this guy can be? He's really important. Ambrose was a leading moral and spiritual authority in the Latin world. He had a strong personality and sense of mission. And I'll close with this. This is a quote about Ambrose. He did not flatter those in power, but castigated them, something that nobody previously had the courage to do. We'll look into that next week. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of this song, and go in the nations, Christian. Thank you.